do have baptisms scheduled today at 2 o'clock out at J.C. Beach. The nice thing about that beach is you don't even have to walk on the sand if you want to to witness those baptisms. They've got a nice boardwalk, and you can stand and witness those. But uh, it's going to be Carl and Elaine Van Camp will be baptized today at 2 o'clock, weather permitting, weather permitting. It's not supposed to be raining, maybe a little wind, but that's okay. So yes, we are in this sermon series, Not Today, Satan, talking about spiritual warfare. We've identified the three enemies of the soul as the devil, the flesh, and the world. Last Sunday we were talking about the devil. Next Sunday we're talking about the world. So today we're talking about the flesh. So lucky you, you are here on Flesh Day. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, formulates our battle in this way. Deceptive ideas from the devil that play to disordered desires, the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. Simply want to ask and answer four questions today. Number one, what is the flesh? What, is the, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of the flesh? Now, the Greek word is sarx, and that can just mean a body, the flesh. But there's also a spiritual connotation to it. Ephesians 2.3, Paul speaks of gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Romans 7.5, the flesh, the sinful passions. There is a, a phrase in our culture that goes like this. The heart wants what it wants. The heart, the heart wants what it wants. A lot of people are familiar with that phrase, but not necessarily how it became popular. It was popularized by an individual. I'm going to put his picture up here and see if you recognize who this is. Who is that? Woody Allen. Woody Allen used this phrase when he was being interviewed by Time Magazine, and in particular, it had to do with his, the, the notorious affair that he had had with Soon Yi Previn. Now, for years in the 80s, Woody Allen had an on-again, off-again relationship with actress Mia Farrow. Mia Farrow had adopted a seven-year-old Korean girl named Soon Yi, Soon Yi Previn. And for, so for the next 14 or 15 years, Woody Allen was effectively her stepfather. But his relationship with Mia Farrow began to deteriorate. And one day she was at his house and saw explicit photos of Soon Yi on Woody Allen's fireplace mantle. And the truth came out that they were sleeping together. And so this became infamous, and he was being, in this interview, he was asked about it. And the journalist said, how can you do that? And Woody Allen's answer was, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. Now, this has become kind of a phrase representing self-justification for following any desire that we have. It's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Hey, what, what can I say? The heart wants what it wants. But how Woody Allen in our culture often uses that word heart in that context is more what Jesus and the New Testament writers were referring to when they used the word flesh. Eugene Peterson, he defines the flesh in this way. He, he wrote the message, translation of the Bible. The corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. So God created the body and the flesh good but sin has corrupted instincts and appetites. John Mark Homer identifies flesh in this way, the animalistic cravings of our body apart from God. Now he goes on to say, it's our base primal animalistic drives for self-gratification, especially pertaining to sensuality, as in sex and food, but also to pleasure in general. Desires that are in all of us, 
We often feel terrified the truth will come out. Or we feel shame over our inner lives. Or even a kind of self-hate. But the New Testament is incredibly open about the dark underbelly of the human heart. So it's not that we don't love, it's that we sometimes love the wrong things. Or we love the right things in the wrong order. If I love my job, that's fine. But if I love my job more than I love my son, that's a problem. If I love my son, that's good. But if I love my son more than I love God, that's going to create some problems in both relationships. Now, in the past, philosophers and religious teachers, most people in society have been in a common agreement that we should restrain those desires. You can't act out on all of those appetites indiscriminately. But a lot of that changed with one particular psychologist. Now, let me put his picture up here and see if you know who this guy is. Anybody want to guess? Sigmund Freud. Nail it. Sigmund Freud. And Freud's idea, his contribution to our culture and society was that repression of desire is the cause of all neurosis. Repression of our desires. So the reason that you're neurotic or that you're unhappy is because somebody is telling you you can't do what you want to do. And we live in a Freudian culture, milieu, and society. The heart wants what it wants. Jonathan Grant wrote, Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. Happiness has become about feeling good, not being good. The self, not God or Scripture, is the new locus of authority in Western culture. In a worldview where desires, read flesh, is sacrosanct, the ultimate sin is to not follow your heart. The flesh exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. All right, so that's the path to happiness in our culture. The problem is that indulging the flesh does not lead to happiness, and it doesn't lead to love or freedom. It leads to something else altogether. All right, so that's question number one. Question number two, let's talk about freedom. What is freedom? How does the New Testament use that word freedom? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So a lot of times we think of freedom, say freedom, that means I can do whatever I want to do. That's not the way the New Testament writers are using freedom. Paul, in fact, is saying, you are not to indulge your flesh. You need to put yourself under the constraints, the restraints of love. He continues in verse 13. After saying, do not indulge the flesh, he says, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So these two are in contrast. They're opposites. We can indulge the flesh or we can love our neighbor. By the way, that's agape love. That means intelligent goodwill for another person. 
working for their good, even if it means a sacrifice on our part. So agape love is sacrificial, it's outward-oriented, it's others-oriented, whereas the flesh is very selfish and turned inward on itself. In fact, Augustine says, sin is love turned in on itself. Now, Paul continues in Galatians 5, verse 16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. So you are not to do whatever you want. You're not to do whatever you want. But here's the world saying, you are to do whatever you want. Some people will recognize this name. Pop icon Billy Ellish said, My thing is that I can do whatever I want, it's all about what makes you feel good. But Paul warns to indulge the flesh, the heart what wants what it wants, to just go with my heart leads to a certain destination. And he tells what that destination is. Galatians 5.19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Any of that sound familiar? Let me put a slide up here with some identifications, breaking out that passage. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Tender, hookup culture, the local club and bar scene. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, Twitter, cancel culture, and most of the news. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, politics. From office gossip to Washington, D.C. Envy, the internet, the mall, most advertising, Instagram. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Netflix, HBO, OnlyFans, and all the rest. What he's describing here is either an individual or a community and a society that give themselves over to the flesh. This is where you're going. That's where one is going to wind up. But he contrasts that with where the Spirit leads as well. Verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Freedom in the New Testament is not the freedom to do whatever I want. It is the freedom to choose the good, the freedom to choose God, to do what's right, and to love other people. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. C.S. Lewis wrote, the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we're all born in, and he says, beware of coming to love the prison. All right, so how are we going to do that? Question number three, what is the law of returns? And we're going to camp out here in Galatians as Paul continues. The law of returns, a man reaps what he sows. The law of returns, we reap what we sow. It all comes around. What goes around comes around. Leslie Jamison wrote a book, The Recovering, about her recovery from alcohol addiction. She wrote, addiction is always a story that has already been told because it inevitably repeats itself, because it grinds down, ultimately for everyone, to the same demolished, reductive, recycled core, desire, use, repeat. Desire, use, repeat. She says in her memoir that she struggled to write anything original about addiction and recovery. 
And she finally realized the reason is that addiction is the human condition. That when we follow our flesh, we follow it into compulsion and addiction. In other words, it becomes a common, mediocre baseline that we all experience. Nothing original about it. But what our society calls addiction, Jesus and Paul called slavery. Slavery to sin. Galatians 6, 7, Paul continues, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So there's a progression that Paul is tracing either in one direction or the other. And he uses this agrarian illustration of seed and harvest. And most of us are not farmers, but we can certainly understand this. There's basically two parts to it. The seed that we sow, the type of seed, is the kind of plant that we're going to reap. So if I sow a seed for a rose, for instance, I'm going to get a rose. If I, I sow a seed for a weed, you know, an obnoxious weed, like poison ivy, I'm going to get the poison ivy. So likewise, sow a seed to the flesh, we reap a kind of fruit in the flesh. Sow a seed to the spirit, we reap a kind of fruit in the spirit. But the second part of it is not as obvious, and that is, that the reaping is all out of proportion to the sowing. So when we sow a seed, we sow something that's very small, smaller than your fingernail. But, but you look what comes from it, a, a bush or a plant or a tree, and the harvest and the fruit is all, often all out of proportion to that one little seed. All right, some of you have had gardens. You, you've experienced this. We lived in Virginia for seven years in Norfolk, Virginia. And in that church, there were a number of older gentlemen, and they were retired, and a lot of them had gardens. And that's, that's what they did with their extra time. They loved to garden. They, they competed with each other to have the best gardens. And they would grow tomatoes and squash and cucumbers and all the rest. And the problem was all of their harvest came due at the same time. So you've got planting and harvest. So they're reaping all of this produce Around the same time, it's far more than any of them can eat themselves. Themselves, their wives, they're usually empty nesters. They got all these tomatoes and cukes and squash. And the joke was, if you came to our church, Colonial Heights Church of Christ, in the summertime, and you left the windows down on your car, you're probably going to get a big bag of zucchini in your front seat when you come out from church. They just had so much, they had to give it all away. But likewise, the Bible says, you sow the wind and you reap the what? The whirlwind. There's a huge return, a disproportionate return. So we sow these seeds, these small habits or actions that seem small. But the return, what happens in our lives, what comes from that, is way out of proportion. C.S. Lewis wrote, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish one. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Of those who do not follow Jesus in the way of love, 
he said this, first they will not, in the end they cannot. So the way of the flesh does not lead to freedom, it leads to greater and greater imprisonment, enslavement. And he would say to the point where you even lose your free will to choose. And we have no idea when a person crosses that line, but that's what he's saying. Whereas the way of the Spirit, ironically, of self-giving love, of putting ourselves under the restraints and constraints of loving others leads to greater freedom to choose the good, to choose God, to choose love, to experience joy and peace. Say, okay, Steve, well, I I buy that. I want to do that. I want to sow the right kind of seed. I want to do the right kind of things. How do I do that? All right, fourth and final question. How do we fight the flesh? How do we fight the flesh? Again, Paul in Galatians, Galatians 5, 16 through 25. Walk by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit, and we keep in step with the Spirit. And part of what he's pointing out here is that willpower is insufficient to do it in and of itself. This is not something we can white-knuckle. This is not something we splash the cold water on our faces and I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm determined to do that. Now, willpower is good as far as it goes for what it can do for us. And what willpower can do for us is move our bodies into a position where we practice the way of Jesus, which is called the spiritual disciplines. And we, we started talking about this last Sunday in our battle with the devil. And remember, said, we said quiet prayer and scripture reading. These are practices. These are like little seeds. They're counter habits to the habits of the flesh. The habits of the flesh, you have the habits of the spirit, are counter habits to the flesh. Spiritual discipline. But they're more than counter habits. They are the means by which we access the Spirit's power. If willpower is not enough, we need a power outside of ourselves, greater than ourselves. Those in recovery call it the higher power. I recognize I was, I was enslaved by my addiction. I need a power outside of myself. How do we access that? That's the role of the spiritual disciplines. Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So, quiet prayer, Scripture, still applicable when we're talking about the flesh just as much as with the devil. But there, there are two spiritual disciplines I want to end with today that are particularly helpful in battling the flesh. Number one is fasting. Fasting. Now, this is a practice of Jesus. It's probably the number one ignored practice of Jesus in our generation of the church. Hasn't always been that way. Of course, we know Jesus fasted. We know his disciples fasted. We know the early church fasted, Acts chapters 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas fasted. We know the church in the generation immediately following the New Testament church that we read about in the New Testament, the very next century of the church after that, we know from the Didache, it describes what that church did, that they fasted. We know from history that the Catholic church and many Protestant denominations fasted every Wednesday and Friday. It's been a traditional, standard, spiritual discipline for centuries, and yet it's one of the least practiced amongst Jesus' disciples today. 
What is fasting? It's going without food. Now, some people say, yeah, yeah, but, you know, I'm fasting from the Internet, and I'm fasting from online shopping, and I'm fasting from television, and I'm fasting from this and that, and that's all great, and I'm all for it. That's called abstinence. Abstinence. But fasting is going without food. And there's something particularly effective about denying our flesh what it wants. When the spirit, our spirit says to our flesh, you're not in control, the spirit is in control of this body. I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm still going to be happy and joyful and at peace, even though I'm not giving you what it wants. That's training the body. And later on, when somebody else doesn't give our flesh what it wants, whether it's some, something in society or even God, we don't freak out about that because we've trained our flesh that our spirit is in control. John Mark Comer writes, I occasionally give spiritual direction, and whenever I'm sitting with a friend who is struggling with any kind of habitual sin, I recommend he take up regular fasting, preferably weekly, especially if the sin is sexual in nature. Not because fasting is a silver bullet, it's not. And a lot of times, addiction and compulsion is rooted in woundedness, so there needs to be healing and there needs to be counseling. It's all good. But having said that, he says, still, through fasting, perhaps more than any other practice, the power of the Holy Spirit to break the chains of sin is released into our bodies. All right, if you decide to try that, don't go for 40 days. Don't try to be Gandhi on this. And some of us probably need to check with a doctor before we try this. I don't want anybody coming back next Sunday and say, Grandma died because you preached on fasting. Check with the doctor. Make sure it's okay. Most biblical fasts were one day from sunup to sundown. Or even just try skipping a meal. We eat three meals a day. Try eating two for one day. Does that really count? Absolutely. God honors baby steps. Even that is a way of saying, no, for this time period, my spirit is in control of my flesh. If everybody comes next Sunday and I see we're all hangry, I'll know that you were listening today. All right, so just planting a seed there, uh, fasting, and I said there were two, and the second discipline very quickly is confession. Confession of sin to one another. James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So if fasting is the number one spiritual practice that we don't do anymore, this is probably number two, confession. And uh, I know it's been abused in the past by certain denominations, but why throw the baby out with the bathwater? A lot of us, our experience of confession of sin is telling God we're sorry when we have the Lord's Supper and the communion. That's great. But that's different from dragging that sin out of the darkness and into the light before another brother or sister in Christ. Different animal altogether. This is why folks who are in recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, 12-step programs, meeting in some basement or some trailer, sitting in a circle, confessing to each other, I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic, I got drunk last night, those folks are much closer 
to New Testament Christianity and freedom through confession of sin than many of our churches are. Be discreet. Make sure it's someone we can trust. We don't want to confess to the town gossip. That might be a big mistake. But consider these two, these two spiritual practices. Fasting, confession. The heart wants what it wants. There's a lot of truth in that. The heart wants what it wants. But the biblical teaching is, in an indirect way, we can influence what our heart wants. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we know that Jesus, the Logos, the Word, was with you. He was a part of everything that was created. He had his hand in that. And that this, this Word, this, the second person of the Trinity and the Godhead, became flesh. He became flesh and blood. He made his dwelling among us. And as the Hebrew writer says, he had to do that in order to redeem flesh and blood beings like us, to be tempted in every way that we have been tempted. We know how Paul says in Philippians, for Jesus to do that, to leave heaven and to put on flesh, was a kind of enslavement to him. He humbled himself and took the form of a human being, a slave. He knows what that feels like. We know what that feels like, to feel like we're trapped and enslaved by the habits of our flesh. Father, we would commit ourselves today to access the power of the Holy Spirit that you have put in us so that we can be free, free to obey, free to love, free to choose the good, free to follow Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.